Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's give it up for the man, the myth, the legend, our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. I'm Ben uh, Noel. We we had a reference in part one of our series on the inspiration behind Moby Dick uh, to wailing songs. And I I was thinking I listened to one while we were on a quick break here. And uh, I got to say, man, I just love them. I love a good shanty. Well, it's like, uh, oh, you mean wailing songs or whale songs? Wailing songs and whale songs. Some whale songs. I love songs a good slaps. shanty. Mm-hmm. Remember that moment where sea shanties was big? I right. missed it entirely. Mm-hmm. I only heard about it like secondhand. I did not participate in that internet moment one iota. You guys know the story of Stan Hugill? No. I do not. Regalus. It's been one I've been wanting to tell. I want to do an ephemeral episode about him, but the problem is it's so hard to find enough information about it but he was known by a lot of people as like the last shanty man he lived to like the 1990s but he had served on like long sea expeditions like in the 1930s and what he kind of like the foresight to do is sit down and write down all the shanties that were singing because a lot of that was just oral history mm. so a lot of the shanties we have today are attributed to him Mm, ah, interesting. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm looking at a cursory biography right now. Wow, the 20th century guardian of the shanty tradition. Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should look into Stan and scratch our shanty itch. I'm actually working on a tune with a friend of the show, Rowan Newby. Um, working on a record with him, and it's uh, very sea shanty esque. It's doing bam bam, It's one that makes you want to. Take your elbow and fist and just mm-hmm. wiggle it back with and like a, a a mug of some sort. I guess that's what that represents. Yeah. It? yeah, 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 for sure. And we are going to talk. Uh, we're we're going to talk about the other side of the equation in the world changing novel Moby Dick. And Moby Dick, if you've ever been forced to read it in high school or if you ever took a, a class on Melville, you'll know that he, he wrote plenty of other stuff, but Moby Dick is far and away his his magnum opus. And it is about so many things. It has uh, symbolism on so many levels with Captain Ahab's monomaniacal search for the white whale. In part one, we learned that Moby Dick is based on the tragic story of a real-life whale named Mocha Dick. But as we're going to learn today, the story of the crew is also very much inspired by the real-life ordeals of crews on whaling ships. Uh, 
especially one in particular, the Essex. And uh, mm. the, 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 the Essex uh, did not have a good time. The polite no, and, and you know, and, and these were this, this was a hard life mm-hmm. just in general. So, I mean, a lot of these folks didn't have a good time. There, there were diseases, there were you know squalls and all of that stuff, and horrible conditions that would lead to a very tenuous existence. Not to mention giant creatures that you were trying to kill that would also maybe try to kill you back. And Moby Dick, the the, the novel by Melville, definitely took that tack. In terms of Captain Ahab, who'd had his, I believe, leg uh, amputated because of an encounter with Moby Dick. And so it was Ahab seeking revenge on the whale. So almost like justified. But then also, I, I haven't read the book in a long time. And Ben, I believe you read it recently. The mania that accompanies the search for revenge is also a big part of the story. So it's not like Ahab is justified, per se, in his quest to kill the whale. Yeah, exactly. So whaling ships are working ships at this time, meaning that, you know, they they only really make money if they successfully kill and process a whale. And you're absolutely right about Ahab's leg. So Moby Dick, on a previous voyage, has bitten off one of Ahab's legs, and now he wears a prosthetic leg made out of whalebone, mm-hmm. and the um, the hapless crew of the Pequod, the, the ship, ends up not just going on a whaling mission, but going like being led by this madman to hunt a suicide mission. This yeah, this specific whale, and they uh, and it takes a long time to get there. But when Ahab finally sights Moby Dick again, he goes absolutely crazy. And suicide mission is an appropriate way to say it. It's Shakespearean in the level of of drama here. And the members of the crew gradually kind of realize that. That's part of it, too. You know, Call Me Ishmael, the perspective character, you know, who's like narrating the book. You start to realize there's something off with this Ahab fellow. (laughs) That that We're not actually on a run-of-the-mill whaling expedition. We're on a potential encounter with death. I mean, the white whale, you know, people use that as a metaphor all the time for the thing that you can never attain or the thing that you're like chasing after. But in the book, I think it kind of represents death. It represents death. It represents God. It represents nature. It's It represents almost every important, implacable thing. And there's, there's really, oh, yeah, now my college professor's ranting at me is coming back. Uh, There's a really, there's an interesting thing that's almost a, um, I think a blink and you miss it kind of aspect of Ahab's life for a lot of first time readers, which is Ahab has insanity in his family. It runs Mm. through his family. His mother has intense mental issues and she's widowed uh, and she names She names her son Ahab. She dies when he's 12. And the name Ahab means uh, father's brother. It comes from Hebrew. Anyway, so Ahab has this— Ahab was a king of Israel, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, he has this— he he has this whole wild backstory that involves— cannibalism and uh, involves strange, almost Lovecraftian adventures in the deep before Lovecraft is really, you know, on the scene. So where does this all come from? Does it come all come from the brilliant mind of Herman Melville? Yes, but <laughs> he didn't, he didn't uh, make all these details up. The Essex as far as Melville knows, uh, the, their trouble on this this real life ship begins in mid August, August fourteenth of eighteen nineteen, just two days after they leave Nantucket. There now, when you go out on a whaling voyage, you're looking at a long term commitment. This this stretch, this mission is supposed to last two and a half years. Jeez, right? I mean, it was the equivalent of space travel back then. Oh yeah, I mean, just so. like, seriously, yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect comparison. And the ship is pretty big. It's 87 feet long, but 
just two days after they leave, they get hit by a squall that destroys one of their sails. The top gallant sail nearly sinks the boat, which is a, a lot like um, it's similar to like uh, spraining your ankle when you're about six yards into the marathon. <laughs> but they have so much. Not a good move. Not a good move at all. But they have so much money invested in this stuff that they soldier on and they continue. They make it to Cape Horn about five weeks later. There's a crew of 20 men. And when they get to South America, they find the waters around the area are nearly fished out depleted. So they say, okay, we're going to sail out to the middle of nowhere. We're going to sail all the way to the South Pacific, very far from any terrestrial shores. We're going to anchor at Charles Island in the Galapagos. And when they anchor there, this is going to uh, be very unpleasant for a lot of fellow animal lovers in the crowd today. They, you know, they weren't concerned about biodiversity or anything like that at this time. So they collect 60 100-pound tortoises. And uh, these guys are still, you know, anytime you're hanging out with a bunch of dudes, doesn't matter the age, you get up to hijinks because we're, 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 we're. Tomfoolery. Right, right. We're, we're, we're a prankish sort. And as a prank, one of the crew members sets a fire on the island even though it's a the dry season, the fire spreads. All these men who are under the um, command of uh, one Captain Pollard, all of them escape, but just barely. They have to literally run through flames. And a day after, after a full day of sailing, they can still see smoke from this burning island on the horizon. So they absolutely wrecked the place. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This also, by the way, wasn't 
that far removed from Charles Darwin's expedition to the Galapagos on the the Beagle, I think is what it was called, the little ship that he used. That was in 1836. Mm-hmm. So, like, we were gonna, we, we're about to get a explosion of knowledge about these types of creatures and their origins, you know. But but this wasn't. This was pre Darwin. So there definitely wasn't the same, again, I just, I mentioned that in the last episode, the same level of understanding of these types of creatures. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Not at all. Like these are not scientists. These are working mariners and the captain is a smart guy. He is furious. He's saying, oh, you think you're funny? You set fire to an entire island and the picture Captain Pollard strolling back and forth, marching on the deck of the ship. And he's saying, I swear vengeance if I find out which one of you started that fire. Mm. And then it seems like a pretty boneheaded move. Absolutely. I mean, even just, you know, minus any scientific understanding of like ecosystems and all that, just kind of stupid in terms of like, these are your potential resources that you could use for survival and you're just going to like set it all on fire. What a dumb dumb. That sounds like someone trying to sabotage the mission, frankly. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's so incompetent that you have to wonder whether there was malice involved if you fast forward, just as a side note, years and years later, you'll see that Charles Island was still a blackened wasteland. And to this very day, that fire, that prank is believed to have been the primary cause of the extinction of two different types of animal, the Floriana tortoise and the Floriana mockingbird, all because some guy thought he was funny. And isn't that interesting? Um, (laughs) Charles Darwin, we also talked about on Ridiculous History, was a big fan of eating all of the animals that he cataloged. So it's almost like he didn't fully understand the concept of extinction either. (laughs) Even though he was doing things that would lead to help us understand that, he was kind of blissfully ignorant of it at the time when he did his, like, big work. Yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, if you talked to the average, I guess, European um, or European-American back in that day, they biodiversity would have been somewhat of a foreign concept to them. They would say, what do you mean? Look around. There are animals everywhere. You're being weird. You're a weird dude. Over on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, they just did a series on the Galapagos reptiles, and they talk about the turtles, of course, and part of Darwin's writing, he talks about trying to ride the turtles. Yes. So uh, I just want to throw that in here to point out, yeah, that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And this is, um, so people are still learning a lot, but they're coming into these new-for-them environments with very specific sets of aims. They're not here to learn about the world. They're here to make a buck, right, and to find a precious resource in their uh, respective economies. Still, they sold drawn. It's November of 1820. They've had a pretty prosperous voyage. They're thousands of miles from land. They're sending out whale boats that have successfully harpooned whales, and uh, they're being dragged along in what the what was popularly called a Nantucket sleigh ride because you're you're dra- you're literally dragging the corpse of the whale behind you. This is where we introduce a, a kid named Owen Chase. Owen Chase is the first mate. He's 23 years old. He stayed above, uh, aboard the mothership, the Essex, to make repairs while Captain Pollard goes whaling. And this kid, Owen Chase, is the first to spot a huge whale. He thinks it's 85 feet in length. And again, for comparison, the Essex is, uh, what, 87 feet or so right yeah they're evenly matched if 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 not in favor of the whale in terms of size so then he sees this whale in the distance being chill just doing its thing its head is facing in the direction of the ship it spouts out of its blowhole you know around uh, three times and then starts making a b line or a w line you know for the ship yeah, and the phrase they use is uh, 
coming for us with great celerity. Celerity is just a fancy word for speed. So it's going from zero to a hundred real quick. It smashes head on into the ship. It gives them a, like a moment in the Star Trek bridge where all the actors throw themselves around. But this is real life. There's not a soundstage. Then the whale passes beneath the Essex and starts thrashing in the water and uh, Owen Chase recalls, and again, this is something he's talking about later, so we don't know how much he's embellishing this, but he says, I could distinctly see the whale smite his jaws together as if distracted with rage and fury, and then the whale, Kaiser Sose style, disappears, which somehow is even scarier. It's super scary. And I think I've mentioned, uh, maybe not on this show, but on stuff that I want you to know, that I often have nightmares where I'm floating in a vast sea and there is some unseen massive creature, you know, beneath the waters. And I know that that whales are gentle and that they wouldn't typically, like, come for me if I wasn't, you know, poking at them or something. But with the scale, there was nothing, there'd be nothing, no poke that I could possibly poke that would, you know, exacerbate something of that magnitude. But the massiveness, the unseenness of a huge thing freaks me out. And um, the the Jordan Peele film, Nope, does a really good job of flipping that from like the Jaws underwater fear to like the sky. And you have this creature in, in Nope that hides kind of in plain sight, but also in the sky. And I thought that was a really brilliant touch to that film. Oh, he's so great. Yeah, I such a fanboy for Jordan Peele. In my head, he can do no wrong. Yes, so this this thing is crazy, right? They've got this crazy situation. Out of nowhere, in their minds, they get blasted. But keep in mind, whales are very intelligent, and this whale has sat there and watched them do those Nantucket sleigh rides across the open ocean. So sleigh, yeah. S-L-A-Y. <laughs> Just so, yeah. And so, so Owen Chase... Uh, is with the rest of the crew trying to fix the hole in the ship that's left over. They're trying to pump out the water. And then one guy, one guy says, oh, here he is. He's making for us again. And then Chase turns and he sees the whale who's going so fast that his head is half out of the water. He's coming even faster with greater celerity. He hits the bow of the ship directly and then disappears for good and the water is fill, filling the ship so quickly that the crew makes the decision. Game time. They call the audible and say, oh, no, this is, this is beyond our means to fix, maybe. So they get the, all their boats that they would use for whaling turn into lifeboats. They fill them with navigational instruments, get as much bread and, most importantly, water as they can aboard before the Essex turns on its side. Meanwhile... Our boy, Captain Pollard, is off on a whaling ship, and he sees this in the distance. He comes back, and the, the Essex is ruined. So he asks this 23-year-old, he goes, My God, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? To which uh, Mr. Chase answered, We have been stove by a whale. <laughs> oh, stove. I don't know that one, y'all. Yeah, stove as a, uh, in this sense, means like smashed through like, like stabbed uh, like smashed inward god I just, I just don't i can't think of any um analog to that word that use yeah it's 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 kind of specific it's like um in a really in a really violent action film if someone punches somebody in the sternum enough that you hear the crack it. and it goes in then they have stove their chest Caved in their chest. Caved in. There we We, go. We have been stoved by a (laughs) whale. Uh, And at this point, they... Well, have they... So are they already on their lifeboats at this point? And they've encountered the captain? No. Yes. 
Yes, because yeah, the, the ship is wrecked. Like they're yeah, the, and and we you mentioned those provisions they brought along, and at this point they're they've also been wrecked because they've been soaked with salt water. And, and I, I can't remember who said this. It was some great poet, I think. But the idea of water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. Yeah, because you're in this you know vast body of water. It's such cruel irony, um, but it's water that you can't drink. It's not potable water. Yeah, exactly. And that's maddening. And as you know, if you're in a survival situation, you can go much longer without food than you can without water. You will die within days. Uh, so this is a terrible, terrible situation. It's like in a sitcom where the parents leave and they come back and the house is burning down. But again, it's real life. Uh, and Borderline trigger warning here. We're about to get into some Think about the worst possible way this story could go, and it's probably going to go there. We've teased it a little bit, but if you don't want to hear about humanity at its absolute nadir, maybe skip ahead five, five, ten minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's nadir, N-A-D-I-R, the opposite of apex, the lowest possible right. point, not Ralph Nader. Uh, <laughs> but it would be funny to see what he said here. Anyway, Ralph is not in the game yet. Uh this there's another boat, another whaling boat that comes by as well. They come back to their ship that like no longer exists, and they have no. And Chase, the first mate, is thinking these guys have no idea how bad things are and how much worse they're about to get. The crew, which again is only twenty men, is at first unwilling to leave the Essex. They just can't process that the the ship is on the way out. Pollard does what captains are supposed to do, maintain calm, make decisions, maintain command, and he tries to come up with a plan. So he does some quick, very desperate math. He's thinking, all right, we got three desperate boats. Math. Yeah, we got three boats left. We've got 20 people. The closest land is going to be uh, the Society Islands and the Marquesas Islands. So let's set off for them. But... This is where things start to go even further off the rails. The first mate, Owen Chase, and the crew say, Captain, we can't go there. We've all heard the stories. Those islands are full of cannibals. They'll eat us. Our best chance to survive is going to be to sail south. Now, look, it'll take us a lot longer to get to land. We understand that, but we might catch the trade winds. Or maybe another whaling ship will catch us. According to Nathaniel Philbrick in his book, Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex. Spoiler, we're not to the tragedy yet. Uh, I think there was a film based on that book because it was called In the Heart of the Sea. And it was, it looked, it had a, oh, Chris Hemsworth in it, mm -hmm. uh, played Thor. I think it's not, it's a Moby Dick-esque story, but it's not Moby Dick. But it's called, I believe, In the Heart of the Sea. I have to assume that it's based on this, this work here. And, yeah, you must be right. And I, you know, I eat these stories up. I love them. But uh, I would never want to experience what we're about to get into. Please do take that earlier disclaimer seriously. Only Captain Pollard seems to understand the danger of not trying to get to the closest mm. landmass. And he still, I guess, in a moment of weakness, assents and says, all right, okay, we'll try to go south then. I see you guys are scared of cannibals. And he probably did some even more desperate math, if we're being honest. And he said, look, in times like this, am I still really a captain? Only nominally. I'm one man among 20. And this is how mutinies go down, right? No doubt. Things could turn against him real quick if he doesn't play his cards right, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so here's the other thing that the author of In the Heart of the Sea noted, noted here. Uh, rumors of cannibalism about those islands were all over the place. But the truth is, people have been visiting them all the time without incident, not even being attacked, much less eaten. Anyway, they don't know this. They don't have access to this information. So they leave the Essex behind, and the three boats they have are 20 feet long each. Uh, so that's still pretty crowded if you think of 20 men and all the supplies 20 men would need. 
It's terrible. Like you said, Noel, salt water has saturated the bread. And so as these guys are eating the bread, they're getting increasingly dehydrated. There's no shade. There's nothing to protect them from the sun. Pollard's boat in particular is attacked by a killer whale. <laughs> and, uh, and again, not not like a killer whale like Moby Dick, an actual species called the, the smaller, sleeker black ones, right? Yeah. Cooler looking, too. They're like the anime looking uh, cetaceans. Yeah. Orcas. Uh, they get they get attacked by an orca, and it's very much not the situation you see at SeaWorld. Uh, SeaWorld's also bad. Check out that documentary. Yeah, Blackfish. So they do eventually spot land about two weeks later. And again, they're very desperate. They're dehydrated. They're, they have the worst sunburns you could imagine, heat stroke, you name it. It's called Henderson Island, but Henderson Island is like a pile of rocks, and so the, it doesn't really help them. I mean, it's like a rest stop. I guess it's a it's a place to stand while you pee. But uh, after <laughs> right, but after another week, they start to run out of supplies as they're sailing on. Three of the crews say, "Look." We know this is not the best land, but we would rather take our chances on land than climb back into a boat ever again. We're done sailing. This yeah. is BS. Boats are dead to me. And we start getting into the territory of like uh, some Looney Tunes cartoons where like I think Bugs Bunny gets marooned on a desert island. And there I think I can't remember who it is, but somebody starts hallucinating and seeing the other person as like a roasted chicken yes. or like, you know, it's it's a it's a trope. It's been done a million times, but it's based on real stuff. And if you go back and watch a lot of those early Looney Tunes cartoons, there's some gnarly stuff in those that are kind of based on more like literary sources of the time, for sure. Mm -hmm. And we had mentioned earlier that they were steering clear of these islands for fear of cannibals, but oh, irony, sweet irony. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They ended up becoming cannibals themselves by around mid-December. 
it, they'd been at sea for weeks, more water being taken on by the boats, more creepy ocean predators menacing them in the night. And by January, their, their supplies had completely run out. Uh, one person went mad, and this is what I was kind of describing with the Looney Tunes, they stood up and he said, I demand a dinner napkin and water, like as though he was, you know, not where he was. Right, exactly. And then apparently started convulsing and uh, passed away the next morning. Chase wrote of this, humanity must shudder at the dreadful recital of what was next to come because they used this uh, fallen comrade as a means of sustenance. Yeah, they tried. They took apart his body and they tried their best to be respectful. They were not completely heartless yet. They took out his organs and they sewed up they sewed up his remains as best they could and then they gave him a burial at sea. And they ate this unfortunate sailor's organs over the neck. Just the next week, three more people died and were eaten in turn. One boat disappeared of the three, and then the other two boats lost sight of each other. On both of the boats that we still know about, the men became too weak, not just to move, but too weak to talk to each other. And uh, the folks on Captain Pollard's boat, there were four of them left. They said, look, if we don't have more food, then we're going to die. And so on February 6th, 1821, one of the four people on the boat, a teenager named Charles Ramsdell, brought forth the, uh, the terrible suggestion that has become a trope in literature. He said, let's draw straws. To yeah. determine who we have to eat next. Who gets the short straw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's rough stuff. And the crew agreed. I mean, it's really, at this point, the most civilized thing to do, right? And ghoulish so, you know, no- nominative determinism. <laughs> because the short straw is drawn by a guy named Owen Coffin, who is oh, the uh, first cousin of the captain. And Pollard has specifically promised the boy's mom, that he would look out for him. And he said, he says to him, look, if you don't like your lot, I will shoot the first man that touches you. And then, according to the story, again, we don't know how much of this is true, Pollard even offers to step in and volunteer as tribute, to take Owen Coffin's place. Jeez, please. And Owen Coffin refuses. He says, well, you know, Essentially, he says fair is fair, and they have a second lottery. This lottery is for the uh, is to determine who has to shoot the teenager, Owen Coffin. And then Ramsdell, the kid who proposed the lot, shoot, uh, he draws the short straw this time, and he shoots Owen Coffin, and they uh, consume him. This is very, very dark stuff, and they're at sea for almost three months exactly, for 89 days. And the last three men on the other boat, on Chase's boat, the first mate's boat, they see a sail in the distance and they manage to make contact with an English ship called the Indian. They are rescued. Things are not going so well on Pollard's boat. They're 300 miles away, just drifting at this point, and there are only two men left, Charles Ramsdell, who is now a murderer, and Captain Pollard, who is now a cannibal. There's a really great um, entry into the Love, Death, and Robots series that I think was directed by David Fincher. It's all, you know, CGI, and it's beautifully done, but it's like a maritime kind of horror show where uh, I don't want to give anything away. You should definitely watch it. It's in the second season. But there's a drawing of lots kind of situation and where where like people have to essentially there's like this creature that they have in the hold of the ship and they have to start like sacrificing crew members to the creature. And there's it's very I mean, obviously, all of the stuff is, you know, inspiration for any number of maritime tropes that we you know know about in, in literature and fiction. Mm-hmm. And we're going to skip some of the uh, 
We're going to skip over some of the grislier details of what happens on Pollard's boat. At this point, ridiculous historians, you might be thinking, what could be grislier? Trust us, it gets worse. Uh, so do your own homework if you wish, but we're going to just, <laughs> yeah. we're going to move to the, the rescue. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the line for us. Uh, eventually, about a week after Chase and the folks on his boat have been rescued, a crew member aboard an American ship, the Dolphin, spots Pollard's boat. And these guys are so out of it, actively hallucinating on the edge of death. They don't celebrate. What they do is try to hide the evidence of their cannibalism. Mm. and uh, Like you would. <laughs> I mean, right. You know, you know reasonably. Uh, and then, so out of this crew of 20, there are five men who survive. If you can call the depravity they had to experience being something that makes you a survivor. They get reunited in Valparaiso and eventually they sell back to Nantucket. Pollard has recovered enough to meet other whaling captains for dinner. He tells them the entire story. One of the captains goes back to his room after dinner, writes everything down and years Years later, the third boat is discovered at a place called Ducey Island, or D-U-C-I-E. There are three skeletons aboard. Um, and what happened to the three men on Henderson Island? Weirdly enough, they survived. They didn't have an easy time, but they didn't have to eat each other. After four months of living on shellfish and bird eggs, an Australian ship happened by and rescued them. And the weird thing is, no, people didn't really judge them too harshly for cannibalism. They they called it a custom of the sea. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, that's, I think, honestly, the about the most empathetic way to uh, proceed. I can't imagine judging someone for just wanting to survive and accusing them of being some sort of inhuman monster, you know, when they just did whatever they, they could to survive. I forget the name of the story, Ben, you might remember it's a Stephen King short story about a doctor who's like marooned on a, like a, like a raft and he, um, oh, he, starts, right. he, he cuts his, his own flesh and eats himself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's similar, you know, I mean, you, you gotta do what you're gonna do or you're gonna lay down and die. And, you know, typically when faced with these kinds of adversities, humans don't really do that. They they persevere and figure out a way, a path forward. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. That's a terrifying story about auto-cannibalism there. Auto-cannibalism, the lightest version of it would be like kids who eat their boogers or people who chew their fingernails. <laughs> and fingernails, but really, yeah. Yeah, but nowhere near on the level of this. So most of these guys are kind of forgiven. People are exercising empathy and saying, who are we to judge? What would we do if we were in that situation and we knew we wanted to survive? All of them, except for Captain Pollard, because Captain Pollard committed the ancient sin of uh, consuming a family member. He had eaten his own cousin. Uh, one, one scholar, and this is a, a ghoulish term, uh, one scholar called this gastronomic incest. Uh, I know, right? Gross. I, I mean, we're already talking about gross stuff, but dang, talk about adding insult to injury, right? I know. And you know, the scholar must have been so pleased. Proud of that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, I am so uh, clever. Yeah. Nah, man. Nah, that was a bridge too far, dude. Mm. No. Thumbs down from the Ridiculous History crew. But, uh, of course, Owen Coffin's mother cannot stand to be around her her relative because again back then they would have had other superstitions about mm -hmm. did you like absorb his soul you know there, there would have been things like that uh, at play in, in thinking about this you know i mean it's a sin so deep that there's not really a specific word for it you know and this abomination would be the closest mm -hmm. or like you know heresy you know Unclean. sacrilege yeah and so uh, how does Melville come into this? Uh, oh, the Pollard spends the rest of his life in Nantucket. He dies, uh, he, he dies there, and according to the story, once a year on the anniversary of the Essex wreck, he would lock himself in a room and apparently fast in honor of his lost crewmen, which is— Oh, that's sad. It is tragic. I mean, 
Well, I mean, it's it's a it's it's sad because this would have haunted this person for the rest of their life. Oh yeah. How do you forgive yourself again in these times where religion and all of these things run so deep? How could you forgive yourself for doing that? And how could you even call it living? You know what I mean? Right. Like you said earlier, you know, mm. at a certain point, you're going to do what you're going to do because that's where the human animal is sort of designed. But then separated from that and put back into, you know, gen pop, that stuff's going to follow you, you know, and mm. haunt your haunt your days and your nights. But Melville did briefly encounter Pollard. Yes. Spoke, but not like in any kind of serious way. It was more like in passing, right? Yeah, yeah. On So in July of 1852, Melville travels via steamship, steamer to Nantucket, and he's kind of a tourist. He meets local dignitaries. He gets a look at the actual, you know, this place that he's been writing about. Because remember, this is the year after Moby Dick publishes. Uh, And he'd only really... I I thought this was research initially. Oh, he'd only imagined this stuff, but he was aware of these stories. And on his very... Was he famous before he wrote Moby Dick? He wrote things before Moby Dick like Taipei or Taipei, which I had read. It's a, it's a story about getting stranded on an island. I think he wrote some, uh, some poems as well. He wrote some romance adventures. He, he was dabbling in various but Moby genres. Dick was his big break, essentially. He made him a household name, right? Yeah, but well, after his death, people... That's how it usually goes, isn't yeah, it? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, people weren't, <laughs> people weren't impressed. And so, yeah, Melville wrote a little bit about Pollard in Moby Dick, or like, you Mm -hmm. know, specifically uh, with regard to the event of the whale sinking his ship. So he had a little bit of historical, you know, realism built in there as sort of like to set the tone, right, in the context. Yeah, exactly, to ground it in real events and make the the story of Ahab seem more real. And on on his very last day in this visit to Nantucket, he meets Captain George Pollard. And Pollard now is a, is a, broken, wretched shell of a 60-year-old man. He was only 29 years old when the Essex went down. He actually, after after the Essex, briefly, he captained a second whaling ship. It was called the Two Brothers. And two years into his career on that ship, it wrecked on a coral reef. And now he was called a Jonah, meaning he was unlucky at sea. No owner ever would let him aboard one of their ships and not because of incompetence, because Just of superstition, oh, right? Yeah. Well, no, but literally they were like, no, you're, you're, you're bad news. Um, mm. Your vibes are going to throw our whole, because I mean, we know that, that maritime history revolves so much around uh, superstition and uh, making sure that you've got the, the right socks on and things. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of joking, but like it was a big thing, you know, because you were venturing into the unknown. So there were these kind of like, talismans or, you know, like ideals that would would hopefully protect you. And you wouldn't want to be around anyone that was seen as like bad luck. Right. When faced with forces beyond your understanding or control, you want to do everything you can to tilt the odds in your favor. So that's why those maritime superstitions continue today. If you've got any friends in uh, in a Navy anywhere in the world or in the merchant Marines, they'll tell you the same. People take that stuff seriously. And uh, like you said, he didn't, Melville didn't have an in-depth soul-searching hangout with Pollard. He said, we just exchanged some words. That's literally how he refers to it. And to Melville, we know that he saw Pollard as a tragic hero. Yeah. Dare I say somewhat like Captain Ahab. He wasn't gonna, (laughs) he wasn't gonna push him, you know? And that's honestly, you got to respect that because today, in the age of true crime and like getting, you know, like plumbing the depths of people's misery, you would have journalists like knocking down this guy's door to get him to relive those horrors. Mm-hmm. And uh, Melville, who, you know, was a successful author, you'd think might be one of those people. But no, he said to the Islanders, he was a nobody. To me, the most impressive man, though wholly unassuming, even humble, that I ever encountered. Mm. And maybe that's where we leave 
the story today. Thank you so much for venturing with us on this tale of tragedy on the high seas. Uh, This is history that may sound ridiculous and larger than life here in 2023, but we have to remember, again, these were sort of the astronauts of their time. And with that, we want to thank uh, our fearless navigator, uh, Mr. Max Williams. Uh, our, I was on the rudder at all times. Our research associate, Dr. Zach, and uh, oh, so many other people that we we promise to do our best never to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, ben, I pledge right now that uh, Don't given some, some sort of maroon, I keep saying maroon because I think it's fun to say, situation, um, y'all can eat me first. No, no, y'all are eating me first. I'm not eating y'all. Well, no, no what you, you guys eat me first. You, no, you what, don't, you, no, what you guys are forgetting is rabbit starvation. This is where the Donner Party messed up. By the check out the stuff they want you to know episode on cannibalism. Most times, when people do decide to break that taboo, they've already been starving for so long that there's very little nutritional content in the oh, meat. No, so we need to make the decision early. Like, early. I got it. I got it. Ben, eat both of us. <laughs> wow, so you can go on and tell our tale. Oh no. You're the best writer on three of us to do it. No, no. It's true. It's terrible though. We're we are a package deal, gentlemen. Uh we're gonna figure something out. So we're all out. gonna eat each other then at the same time? <laughs> well, we could just take turns cutting little pieces. Oh god, this has gotten really <laughs> it's time to I cut mean, the episode. We don't, yeah, you know, if we're not dead, uh, we we have to just take turns, you know, you get a little flank from me. Um, yeah, we'll get, uh, we'll uh, get a little we'll hanger with, from Ben. Yeah. You know, um, oh jeez. Okay, well, how about this? Let's just let's keep this these lessons in mind and let's make sure that wherever we go there's plenty of food you know or I get, at least Jonathan Strickland yeah oh he yeah oh, wait no 100% problem solved yeah thanks to Jonathan for volunteering his tribute uh, thanks Alex Williams <laughs> thanks to Eve's Jeff Coat what a ride and and of course Noel Thank you so much, man. I know that we're like behind the behind the scenes, folks. Um, we've all had really busy weeks. Uh, I am kind of off off the grid a bit, uh, but we are we're making uh, we're making these shows happen because we love it. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, fellow ridiculous historians, and Noel. I certainly couldn't do uh, anything like this show uh, without you, my friend. Same, me hearty. Same. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is she pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care and we'll see you there.